Hey, good morning. Can we shout out the Belize team again? I think that's awesome they're here doing that. And then uh, this Monday night, next t- tomorrow night, we're going to have the Pray for Souls meeting, so we want to invite you to that here at Calvary Chapel South. So if you want to stand, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, and if you want to follow along, Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 17 through 24. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 17. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Verse 19, he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Verse 22, and and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Each of us relates to that, Father. We believe. We love you. We're here. We want to hear from you, and yet we struggle with unbelief. Use your word today to encourage us, to build us up, to call out things in our lives that are unbelief, and to minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So looking at this particular passage... There's four things that I think would help us to understand it better. Four things that would make it a little bit easier to kind of get a grip on the passage. The first thing is uh, that disciples are being called out. So I don't know about you, but if you're going to call me out and tell me something I'm doing wrong, would you please do it privately, not in front of everybody? In this particular example, the, the disciples are out in front of the scribes, in front of Jesus, in front of the crowd. And the father comes and says, hey, the disciples couldn't do this. They couldn't cast out the demon. And they were supposed to be able to do that. They were given the authority to do it, and they couldn't do it. So he calls them out in public, and that's going to help you to understand the passage, because there's one part later where they're going to go, they're going to try to get Jesus privately aside and get, hey, can you tell us what exactly happened back there? They They want it done privately. The second thing is in this passage, there's horrific human suffering. It's not just the boy that has these convulsions, but it's the father who has to watch. The boy couldn't speak, and the boy couldn't hear. And the father had to watch these convulsions and not be able to say, no, his boy couldn't hear him, and he couldn't hear his boy's, his boy's voice. So this first thing is there's disciples being called out. Secondly, the father and son are facing human suffering. Thirdly, there's a key verse that I would guess everybody in this room almost Reading this passage, go, yep, that's the key verse. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to try to unwind how we have belief in our hearts, faith, and unbelief at the same time. We'll try to unwind that a little bit. And then lastly, probably the most important thing to understand this passage, Mark and Matthew both say that when asked the question, the disciples to Jesus, why could we not cast this out? They both have the same answer. This kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. 
But Matthew, and I don't know if it's up on the screen, but Matthew 17, 19, when he was asked, why could we not cast it out? Matthew records that Jesus said these words, because of your unbelief. So it, it makes it crystal clear that this whole passage is about belief and unbelief. So the context is Jesus just comes down from the mountain. Kevin taught on that last week, the transfiguration. He was with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. They're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I loved what, what Kevin was talking about, that it was a preview of the second coming of Christ. These disciples are up on the Mount, and they see Jesus in his glory. And this is a glimpse of the glory that Jesus had before he took on human form. And it affects these guys. They're up on the Mount, and then they come down into the valley. And when they come down into the valley, there's arguing. There's this, this arguing going on. They come down into the valley. There's human suffering. And I think the reason that I find great encouragement with that is because I just want to know what to expect. If you ask me to go for a hike around Green Lake, and I'm getting in my mind, grout or paved road, you know, there's places to get a, a coffee, and then it turns out that this is an eight-hour hike up in the mountains, I'm not going to like that. And in this particular case... This example of the mountaintop and the valley is the way our lives are here on earth. We have these great relationship experiences with God. I know one of the worship songs I was listening in the back, and I was listening to one of the worship songs, and I was moved by it. And it was, we were entering in, and there's this intimacy, and then we get a phone call when we get home from church that something happened. There was a car accident, or there was an issue with a marriage issue, or an issue with our kids, or we live in this world that has ups and downs. So I, I find three encouragements before we even get into the, the next verses. Number one, if you're in a valley, you're not alone. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. So you're not alone. Number two, it's not your fault necessarily that you're in a valley. Now, all of us have a lot of experiences where we got ourselves into a valley. I get that. But not necessarily the fact that this boy is sick with, with an epileptic-type fit. Is it because he did anything wrong? So you're not alone. It's not necessarily your fault. And lastly, the faith that we need to make it through the valley is just one step. And we're going to see in this chapter a guy who has really weak faith He's going to get blessed and he's going to get his son delivered. So it's, an encouraging, it's encouraging in that part. So let's get into unpacking verse, start with verse 14 to get some context. Mark 9, 14. When he came down, when he came to the disciples, that he is Jesus. And also Peter, James, and John come down to the other nine disciples that were still down in the valley. He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. So some, some commentators say that maybe, maybe Jesus somehow had a residual shine or glow from being on the mountaintop experience. I don't know. Verse, verse 16 says, and he asked the scribes, listen to who he asked. He didn't ask the disciples. The disciples are right there, and he asked the scribes, the guys who wrote the copies of the Old Testament, knew the law in and out, and he asked them, he says, what are you guys arguing about? What are you discussing? The scribes don't say a thing. 
Now they were getting into it with the disciples, probably gloating. Hey, you guys couldn't do what Jesus said you could do. But then when Jesus comes and he says, what were you guys discussing? What were you arguing about? They're quiet. And then one, verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, and please don't go past that word wherever, because it doesn't say whenever. It's going to become important. It says wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So the dad describes his son's problems. And then Luke in chapter 9 tells us a little bit more detail. It says that the boy was bruised when he was thrown down into these fits. So it didn't just happen that he had a seizure. It would be the next day his body would be bruised from all the places that he was bounced upon and got hurt in the seizure. And so the first question that I think for probably a lot of us are thinking, how do you know the difference between a demon possession and a normal medical experience? How do you decide between those two? Um, I don't, I'm not an outline expert on that. I mean, I've had some experience over the years, but not a lot. In this particular case, first of all, the father brings the boy and he says, something is so odd with this that I think it's a demon possession. But secondly, I think the more important key is that wherever, he doesn't just have a seizure. He specifically is having seizures when he's near a fire and when he's near water. And so here's this case where certainly that is Satan's fingerprint trying to destroy us, to kill us, actually to kill the boy. So I'm not sure we're going to unwind every case where there's spiritual demonic oppression and then there's other things. We're going to understand everything. When people ask me to pray for healing, which happens occasionally or probably frequently, I pray for three things. I pray for the spiritual, a miraculous healing, I pray for good medical care, and I pray for grace to go through whatever God allows you to go through in your life. But I don't think we're always going to unwind it clearly. The Bible says that we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it's all mixed up in a sense. We have the old man that's inside us. It's not a demonic possession. It's the old man, the old nature that lives inside us and draws us to want to do evil or want to do wrong. So we won't fully understand it and I think the key thing to do is to do two things. One, be, or the key thing to be balancing is one, it's not a good idea to ignore that there's a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual thing that we're fighting against. Do not ignore it. Do not ignore it. The sin that we, the things that we do that open us up to, to the, the battle that we're in, that we're facing, we don't want to ignore that. Number two, I don't think we want to overemphasize the power of, of, the, of the devil. This is not a power between two equals fighting it out to see who wins. This is God all-powerful and demonic spirits. Now, the example that I have is not a good example, but, um, and, I'm, and I just want to say as a disclaimer, I am not saying that cats are demonic, demonic beings, okay? I am not saying, I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that. But, but, however, trying to get a cat into one of those little bag or little boxes that you have to take it to the vet in, there's an uncanny resemblance to dealing with the demonic spirit. <laughs> a few months ago, or actually it was quite a few years ago, uh, we had to do that. And my wife, who admittedly sometimes I think loves the cat, loved the cat more than she loved me, 
She went into the basement to get the cat into the box. And I'm upstairs, and she came back upstairs, and I mean scratched and exasperated. So I went into the garage, and I got my leather gloves, and I got my heavy-duty work jacket. I'm not sure if I had my weed whacker helmet that has a little shield that comes down. And the cat really didn't have a chance. There was a little bit of a scuffle. You could hear some noise going on, but I got the cat in the box, and that's not a great example of what we're talking about, but the idea <laughs> is clear. God, when it comes to demonic spirits, it's not a battle between equals. He is all-powerful. When we talk about demonic spirits, we want to keep it in perspective. So verse 18, the last part of verse 18 says, So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. The disciples lived with Jesus. They saw his miracles. They were given authority. If you look at Mark 3.14, it says, Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that they might send them out to preach, verse 15, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. This was a specific power that he gave his disciples. They, they, they had seen it. They had done it. They had had success with it. And now they have this example of this one boy and they couldn't do it. And Mark or Matthew says the reason they couldn't do it, their unbelief. So I want to exhort us, those of us who are a little bit older in the church, this is the disciples that struggle with unbelief. We that have been around the church, been here for a long time, been involved in stuff, been involved in leadership, we can be the ones that have unbelief. These are the disciples that had unbelief. Verse 19, he answered and said to him, this is a little bit tough because I don't know about you, but I have a hard time listening to Jesus when he sounds like he's frustrated. Okay, I have a hard time with that because I, I think we're a little fragile. And he says... I studied to try to figure out a way to make it less soften the blow, but he says in verse 19, he answered and said to them, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. The father, faithless in the sense he put his trust in the disciples. It's not the right way to do it. We put our trust in Jesus. The disciples, the leaders, the, they're helpful. But we put our trust in Jesus. The disciples, it's clearly a rebuke to them. Matthew says, why couldn't we cast out, when they asked, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Jesus said, because of your unbelief. It's clearly a rebuke to them. But to the crowd, and this is where I want to focus a little bit. If you look at Matthew 17, 17, verse, chapter 17 and verse 17, there's two words that Matthew gives us that explain his rebuke to the crowd. He says in Matthew 17, 17, then Jesus answered and said, same thing, O faithless, but look at the other two words, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? A generation that has no faith becomes a perverse generation. And if you look up a dictionary definition of perverse, I was a little surprised by it because I thought, yeah, we all know what that means. Perverse in the dictionary says, showing a deliberate and obstinate desire to behave in a way that is unreasonable or unacceptable. And listen to this last part. Often in spite of the consequences. 
a perverse generation that wants to behave in a way that's unacceptable, regardless of the consequences of their actions. And that's Jesus' rebuke to the generation. But, you know, what's really encouraging is he doesn't say, oh, faithless generations, how long do I have to be with you? How long do I have to put up with you and to bear you? I am out of here. I'm done with you. He says, bring him to me. This is Jesus' heart. Maybe there are things in our lives that he's like, faith, your unfaith, your unbelief. But bring him to me. Bring him. That's the, that, if we stop the sermon right there, that would be the message. Bring ourselves to Jesus. Bring others to Jesus. Verse 20. I notice I said that would be a good end of the sermon, but I didn't end the sermon. Verse 20. And then they brought him, the boy, to him, Jesus. And when he, I think that's the spirit, could be the boy, I'm not sure. When he, the spirit, saw him, Jesus, in verse 20, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell to, on the ground and wallowed. He was rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Have you ever carried a burden for so long and the burden was so heavy and you've been so alone that when someone asks you how you're doing, tears well up in your eyes. And there's been, there's been for this father, there's been a life of washing the back of his son who fell into the fire. There's been a life of not, he goes out on a boat trip and the whole time he's, he's scared. If the boy falls in the water and has a fit, he's going to drown. Jesus, I think he communicated to this father what you've been going through must have been really hard. How long has it been? How long has this been going on? In verse 22, and as often he was thrown into the fire and into the water, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And then the man says something. He says to Jesus, he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. I don't know why, but I found that, like, this guy looking at Jesus and saying, if you can do anything, and, and Jesus, like, you know, not saying back to him, if I can do anything? Um, did, you, did you miss the part where I walked on water? Like, Jesus' response to him, theologically, this guy needs Jesus to sit him down and explain theology to him. I am God. I was God before I came to earth. I am God. And this guy, he's, he's theologically just off the charts. And Jesus doesn't say that. He meets the man where he is. He meets him right where he's at. He doesn't, he doesn't get on his case. He meets him where he's at and he says gently, if you can believe. What a Savior. What a Savior. If you can believe. Amazing. What's really amazing, this man's faith is going to end up in the end of the passage being enough that his son gets delivered. This guy who says, Jesus, if you can do anything. I think we all have those questions. We might not, we might not say it that way. We might not say publicly as Christians, Jesus, can you do anything? But I think when you prayed for something over and over, or you've had an illness or something, I think we understand it. So verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, 
help my unbelief. Matthew tells us that a little bit of information in the story that Mark forgets to say, that the man came to Jesus and knelt before him. So here's a man kneeling before Jesus in tears, and he says, Lord, I believe. I'm here. I'm here at your feet, broken at your feet. Help me unbelieve, help me with my unbelief, because I'm having a hard time believing that after all that I've gone through with my son, that you can actually do something. And the disciples, they couldn't do it. So really, there's a lot on the disciples here, because they made the example to this man, hey, it can't be done. We can't do anything about it. Verse 25, when Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, to, I command you come out. Come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. It's easy to skip over a couple pieces in that. It says, it says come out of him. But then he says something that the dad really needed to hear. He says, enter him no more. Dad needed to hear that. Anyone here that's gone through cancer or gone through addiction, uh, you could come up and also finish the sermon because the one thing you don't want to hear is it came back. There was a relapse on that addiction. Family members, us, our family, however it is, this, this father needed to hear, enter him no more. Matthew 12, 45 is a difficult passage, but a lot of commentators tied it into this one where I won't share all the details, but there was a man that had a spirit, a demon, and then it was exercised out of him, and then seven more spirits came into him. The goal isn't just to get the spirit out, the bad spirit out. It's to be filled with God. The God, the Holy Spirit, dwells us believers so that we cannot be demon-possessed. So verse 26, there's one final convulsion. Uh, Revelation 12, 12 talks a little bit about how Satan in the last moment is a little bit difficult in his attacks in the very last moment before he's cast out because he knows he has a little bit of time. This demon has a little bit of time before he knows he's cast out. There's one last convulsion. And then it says that Jesus raised the boy up by the hand. And the interesting thing is Luke, you really reading the different uh, uh, Gospels on, on this particular story. Luke says he presented the boy to the dad. There's a scene in the movie uh, Sound of Freedom where Tim Ballard, who's a former U.S. Department of Homeland Security agent, conducts sting operations to rescue young brother and sister from human trafficking in Colombia. There's one scene in the movie where he rescues this little boy who's been sex trafficked, and you can see they don't, they don't show the the horrific acts and all that, but they show in the eyes of the boy the terror that he's gone through as he's been sex trafficked. And, and Tim, in the reenactment of the true story, presents this boy to his dad, safe and sound and rescued out of sex trafficking. And it's the turning point of the whole movie because that's when he decides to go back and get the sister and devote his life at the time to rescuing kids. So Jesus presents this boy to the dad in verse 28. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, like, please don't do this in public. <laughs> please don't talk about me uh, in the group here. Let, let's not do our, our employee review in the, in the staff cafeteria. Let's do it privately, please. 
he asked them privately, they asked Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And I want to make sure we deal with both issues because we know Matthew told us it's not just prayer and fasting. Matthew says, because of your unbelief. And I, I wrote down four things about unbelief. Number one, probably not the, the symptom, but a symptom for sure of unbelief in my life and in your life is are you worried about something? Are you worrying here this morning? Am I worrying? I'm having trouble casting my cares on Jesus. Unbelief, call it what it is, unbelief. Secondly, the effect of unbelief stuck in whatever we need supernatural help to get out of. Unbelief, if there's unbelief in my life right now or in our lives, we are stuck in whatever situation we need supernatural help to get out of that situation. We're stuck if we have unbelief. The solution, Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Right now in this meeting room, this last two weeks as I was reading these passages, God's working that faith into our lives by the word of God. Faith comes by the word of God. And the strategy, strategy, exercise your faith. If God's asking you to do something, I know we get asked to do a ton of things, right? So he's not... That is not all God, everything that we're being asked to do. But if he's putting something on your heart and asking you and challenging you in your faith to do something, say yes to God. Maybe he's challenged you to find two other guys and get together and have a Bible study and have the theme of your Bible study be, let's be done with lesser things. Do it. Exercise your faith. I know we all know how muscles work. I mean, I think this is probably common knowledge, but there's a, a definition of what, how you build muscle. I put it up on the screen. I think it says, by lifting weights, you're actually causing tiny tears known as micro tears in the muscle, in the muscle fibers, which the body then repairs and adapts the muscles to better handle the stimulus that caused the damage. You go to the gym, you do that hard work, and you tear the muscle, and you know when it builds back up? When you go to bed and go to sleep. I mean, it's awesome the way God designed the body. Faith, the same thing. It, exercise our faith. If there's something that, that God's calling you to do to exercise your faith, you'll tear and it's hard. The things that he calls us to do that are exercise in our faith, they're hard, but it will grow our faith. So then he says this kind, and I'm not going to focus on that a lot as we come to the end of the, the time. Uh, if you're interested, Daniel 10, 13 would be what most commentators would refer to on that because the Bible's not super extensively clear on, on the hierarchy of demons. Somehow it's apparent that there's some, some differentiation of demons that are harder to remove. I'm not going to focus on that, but you can look at that verse, Daniel 10, 13. But I do want to close and talk a little bit about prayer and fasting. For, for many in this room, prayer and fasting is like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. And I think one of the reasons that happens, well, a couple things. One, there's probably more people in this room that fast than you know about because if people are fasting accurately or correctly, biblically, they're not letting you know. It's not like they're announcing, I am fasting, look at me. Um, I think sometimes we get the idea of prayer and fasting 
that it's like we're going to sacrifice for God and we're going to earn some power points with God. And if I do enough sacrificing, I'm going to, it's like the, it's a bad, another bad illustration, but the Mario game where he bounces up and there's a little jingling noise and he gets a gold coin of power and he can take that gold coin and he can go do things with it. I think sometimes, I know for me, I can read that and think, I'm going to sacrifice for God. I'm going to hurt myself or deny myself food and I'm going to get this power from God. I don't think that's a healthy way to look at prayer and fasting. In fact, I think that's an unhealthy way to look at prayer and fasting. David Gusick, I think, says it very clearly. He says, it isn't that prayer and fasting make us more worthy. It isn't that prayer and fasting make us more worthy to cast out demons. It is that prayer and fasting draw us closer to the heart of God. And they put us more in line with his power. And they are an expression of our total dependence on him. As I read a bunch of commentaries on this, on this one passage, I ran it, two of the commentaries said the same thing, and I thought, man, that's awesome. Two commentaries, I don't know who originally said it, but they said prayer and fasting is like connecting with God and disconnecting from the world. Connecting with God through prayer and disconnecting with the world through fasting. I don't know about you guys, but to get the prayer intimacy it's like a rocket ship that everything on this earth and gravity is opposed to us being men and women of prayer. And to get that rocket ship of prayer, that intimacy of prayer with God, and don't get me wrong, I think that, you know, there are times when you have, or we have a verse of the day on our phone that has, we, watch, we don't even want to read it anymore, we just watch the video, right? I, I don't know if I'm the only one that does that, but you can get the verse of the day and there's a little video in your Bible app and that is awesome. It is amazing that we have that intimacy and that, and those are meaningful connections with God. But I think there are times when we need to get the rocket ship off and have intimacy of prayer and prayer and fasting, connecting with God and disconnecting from the world. So if we can have the worship team come up, I want to close a little bit by talking about how this really applies to us today in this room. I think most of us relate to the father in the story when he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Amen. I think that we all just sort of resonate with that. We struggle with that. Um, but this passage is so amazing because we see a man that says to Jesus, if you can do anything, the man says, if you can do anything, and he gets his prayer answered. His, weak, his prayer is so weak, he gets his prayer answered. It's not the only example of feeble faith that we see in the scriptures. It's not the only answer we see that way. It's the only example we see that way. I was thinking about Sarah. Sarah in the Bible married to Abraham, promised that she would have a child, promised that she would be a mother of many nations. She has this promise. She waits 25 years. Waiting for the promise that I'm going to have a child, I'm going to have a child. Her years of childbearing pass her by, and the angel comes to her and says, you're going to, you're going to conceive. And Sarah laughs. I mean, keep in mind, this, Sarah's the one that gets the baby in the, in the end of it, but this is her faith. She laughs. And the thing that got me more than anything, didn't get, it always has been interesting to me, is when Grandma Sarah lies about laughing. She said, I didn't laugh. 
I didn't laugh. You know, you see grandma, just a sweet grandma, and when grandma gets busted lying, there's something substantial about that, right? <laughs> and grandma goes, yeah, you did say that, grandma. You, we all heard you say that. Sarah, she just, she laughs at the possibility that God's going to give her a son when her, when her time childbirthing years are over. She laughs, she lies about it, and God gives her a son. So I guess the, the point of this story to me is this man that said, Jesus, if you can do anything, he did come to Jesus. He did cry at his feet and he worshiped him and he said, I believe, help man believe. I would say God wants to respond to your prayers this morning for help. He wants to respond. Jesus said to the father, bring your son to me. So my encouragement to us today in this disconnect from or connect with God, disconnect from the world and bring your requests to Jesus. So let's enter into worship.